Maybe Morgan dressed like Wolverine. Maybe Dave ate his way out of trouble. Maybe Dustin's diorama came in last. Maybe Morgan tunneled out of jail. Maybe Dustin ran for council member. Maybe Dave found himself horribly miscast. Find out what happened. Yes, find out what happened. Since when last we left our Welcome to When Last We Left Our Podcast, a bi-weekly storytelling podcast hosted by me, Morgan Pielli. Me, Dave Ward. And me, Dustin Diodato. Each week, we tell true life stories inspired by events that happened to us since the last time we recorded the podcast. When last we left our podcast, Dustin saw an old lady on the street, Morgan had a crappy week, and Dave went for a run. Hey guys, how are you all doing? Today. Don't you want to say this week on our podcast? No, because I keep forgetting that for some reason. <laughs> so I will say that okay. now. This week, Morgan went to a movie. Dave meets an old friend. Dustin deals with Times Square. Hey, guys. <laughs> How are you doing? I don't know why I've forgotten that twice in a row now. I don't know. I've only read, read that intro like a thousand times. You didn't times. need to mention that you've forgotten it twice in a row because last time we edited it out. Yeah, I don't want to do that. I don't yeah. want to give you guys more work. So uh, I'm just going to keep rolling. I, I feel like we need to work on our teasers. Do we? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think we do. All right. right. Because, um... And as the guy who writes the website descriptions, they could be better, too. Yeah. Because, um, because for, for example, like, the teaser's supposed to be like, oh, I wonder what that story is about. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, Morgan saw a movie. What? Yeah, yeah. All right. No, in fairness, and though, never... asked, I've asked you guys what you want for teasers. There's like, my own old lady. Burp. <laughs> and you'll never believe what happened next. <laughs> well, there we yeah, are. Can you just uh, just put you and, hilari- up a bit? and yeah. hilarity and suit? Oh, wait, wait, wait. wait. At the say, end of everything? say each one, and I'll give I'll give I'll give right. a, a, a roundabout on it. This week, Morgan went to a movie, and you'll never believe what happened next. Dave meets an old friend, In and bed. what happened? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> better, better, better than what happened. Dustin deals with Times Square, and the thing that happened after that will cause your penis to enlarge. <laughs> no, it no, it won't. It, it probably because I know how that story goes. And it does not do that, <laughs> and it is often in Times Square. But, where you find well, that. I mean. Yeah. They're not going to remember. They're just going to remember that they really wanted to hear that story, right? No, I, I assume that fans of me just fast forward to my story. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Fans of me do the same thing. And that, by that, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> and someday, yeah, I'll have fans. Um, all right. So I'm going to talk about my week now. All right, cool. Okay. Because I went to a movie. So I went to see a movie called Persistence of Vision, uh, which is a fantastic documentary um, uh, by a guy named Kevin Shrek, and is about uh, a cartoonist animator named Richard Williams. And if you are not familiar with that name, that is not surprising. He never, he's not a household name, but he is best known for doing the animation on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. He started an animation house in the 60s. Uh, he, the animation house lasted until, I believe, the mid-90s. Um, now he does, uh, he literally wrote the book on animation. There's a, he wrote a book on, I forget what it's called exactly, but it's, if you talk to any animator, that is the first book they recommend. He is a master of the form. And the documentary was about, uh, yep. Is he, st- is he still alive? He's still alive. He's in his 80s, I believe. Um, he started doing animation uh, really young, I think in his 20s. Um, and the documentary is about not, it's not about his, his career so much as one specific film that he worked on. Um, he decided in around the sixties, he said, well, I've, I've more or less mastered the craft of animation. Even back then he was already just a phenomenon of, of hand-drawn animation. And I've already mastered the craft. And this is what he says at one point in an interview, I've mastered the craft and what someone does when they've mastered their art form is then they create their masterpiece. The masterpiece is when you take everything that you've learned and honed and completely dominated, essentially, and you make this one perfect piece of art out of it. And my masterpiece is this movie called The Thief and the Cobbler. It had a different title early on, and so in this particular interview, he calls it by whatever that title was. But it eventually becomes known as The Thief and the Cobbler. And he worked on this for more than two decades. And the film is about, the documentary is about him failing to finish his masterpiece. And it's a heartbreaking film, and the reason why I'm talking about it is because I also identified really, really strongly with it. Um, 
as I think I've mentioned on this podcast before, I have a cartooning background. Uh, not animation, but comics-style cartooning. And it's something that I've loved and pursued and saw as a defining part of my person since second grade. It's been a huge part of me. But of all the artistic endeavors that I've pursued, it's the one that I've struggled the most with, the one that I've made perhaps the least progress on. Um, I did comics when I was in undergrad, and then I ended up going to uh, grad school specifically for comics. And I had a very troubled time, excuse me, um, there. I never really clicked with the school. I really struggled to find my voice and uh, to find a way of producing that didn't feel like pulling teeth. Um, uh, can, uh, you're, yeah, yeah. you're certainly uh, singing my song in, in, in some regards. Can I ask you how you're defining like progress? Um, sure. I mean, there's a number of ways you can look at it. And the way that I've looked at it is I'd like to have something published, mm -hmm. something that's not self-published. I've produced uh, hundreds of pages of material. I did like a nine page uh, mini series of comics and I put into a volume, but it was all self-published. Like no, no one was publishing my work, which isn't unsurprising, especially back then it was very raw and it was very unpolished. And it's, you know, I still work in my craft and one of the reasons I pursued comics and drawing in general was that it wasn't something that I was good at. Um, not naturally. Like, I come from my family. My mom is a writer. Um, there's a lot of performing and written arts in my history. So as I, when, when I have, like, a natural talent, writing is something that comes naturally so, to me. So uh, I'm going to interrupt you because I went – we went to college together. Um, and it's very interesting for, for me to hear you say that because certainly by the time you were in college, Morgan and I – we're both on the cartooning page. Oh, yeah. And I have... The back page, uh, as it the, was called. It was a fun page. The fun, well, yeah. It was eventually but it was right. on the back page. Yeah. Um, and I I had a cartoon. <laughs> Mr. Scooshy Face! Oh, my God. I love Mr. Scooshy Face. It, it was... I had a cartoon on it. Another friend of ours had a cartoon on it. And, and Morgan had a cartoon on it. And Morgan, yours by far was the best artwork. Like... Thank you, and uh, yes, and, and I'm not gonna, I'm not going to walk that back. Yeah, so, yeah. and I'm going to interrupt you, interrupting no, me. Please. The reason I say that was because, so in kindergarten, um, I remember distinctly seeing someone able to draw a house, and it was kindergarten, so it was like you know it was a very very basic house. But I remember seeing that and not understanding how they were able to do that because then I I sat down on a sheet of paper with a crayon and I couldn't even make the, like the simple outline of a house. My brain didn't understand how to make my hand make that shape. I remember literally I tried to make a house. So I made a square and then I just scribbled over it. And like, I know this is wrong and this doesn't look like a house, but I don't know how to not make this thing. And I don't know how to make the thing that I want to make. And for whatever reason, that really stuck with me and really, really stuck hard. And so from that moment on, I worked like all of my free time from, from kindergarten until now trying to figure out how to make things in my head come out on a piece of paper. So by the time I got to college, I had made some progress. And I really could have used you because through a lot of elementary school, I would write Transformers fan fiction. But you are was, speaking my language. But there was no ability for me to draw it out. So if you and I had come together <laughs> in elementary school... Yeah. I could have written the fan fiction. You could have illustrated it. We would have made millions. Did you make up your own characters or using existing characters? No, I used existing characters. Who's your cool. favorite character? Uh, Bumblebee was actually at the heart of, of a lot of yeah, it. This would be post-movie, right? It was yeah. pre-movie. Pre-movie. For new listeners who are still listening to the podcast, Morgan's very into Transformers. It's really sad. Um, um, did, did I do this completely unrelated, but I, um, I got the phone number of a woman at a They Might Be Giants concert. Um, partially because she had a Decepticon tattoo on her. And then like my, when I texted her after, you know, afterwards to say hi, I sent her the universal greeting from the Transformers movie and she didn't respond to that. That's you, not that, that. Is, you just hit, they Bana, might be giants. <laughs> you actually knew it. You of course hit, I knew might, it. You hit, well, but I mean, you texted her Banawina. She thought you you butt text. Yeah, yeah. Or I was having a stroke. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, back to so. Okay, let me get back to my story here before we go too. Maybe off. she's just researching what the right answer to that. Is. Yeah, she yeah. could be. She did eventually respond. She just didn't make mention of my universal greeting. I don't think she's as big a fan as she thinks she is. So, <laughs> I know it's sad. Um, so, 
uh, oh yeah, so I've so I've really struggled to try to produce uh, comics, and I hit a really serious artist block about three years ago, and I haven't finished. And this is really hard for me to admit. I haven't finished a comic in at least three years. Um, Indestructible Universe was the series I was doing, which you've seen, uh, which I collect into a volume. On Morgan indicated me. There. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm pointing. <laughs> you know, as everyone who's listening can see me point in Dave's general direction. Well, I assume it's it, in stereo. You can it, hear me lean slightly to my left. It sounded like what you've seen, listeners. <laughs> you listeners <laughs> who've been following the podcast. Um, yeah, so that was the last thing I produced. And there's a number of reasons for the artistic block. And part of it was that because I had such a, such a, a bad experience in my grad program where I just didn't click with people. And my work didn't really seem to resonate, and I just didn't feel encouraged, which is a thing that I shouldn't worry about. Like, I shouldn't be driven as an artist by other people encouraging me, like I'm a child. But it's hard not to be dissuaded when you are kind of met with that silence of indifference by your classmates. Especially when those classmates go on to success and have books published and are have become names in the industry. And when that school and those people have become such an instr- instrumental part of that particular scene. So it became this part where like, I would go to conventions and it would be all of those people there. And I would get even more and more self-conscious about the work that I was doing, that it wasn't good enough, that I wasn't... And I found that I was drawing for these people. And that's the thing that it took a lot of therapy to realize that like I was... Part of the problem was that I was making my own work, but I was still like craving their um, acceptance of me. And so at a certain point, I needed to step back. I wasn't... I was miserable going to conventions. I wasn't happy drawing. And so I had this block, but it was also this kind of safety valve of like, I need to step back from this. And I discovered storytelling, which became my artistic outlet and it's been fantastic. But I still really missed drawing comics and writing comics. Do you think it's a block though? Like it sounds like. You said At a you, certain point well, it was. Well, you said like, here's what, here's what I would ask. Um, Cause I've gone through something similar in performing where like I found myself uh, initially gaining a lot of traction um, and specific places, and then uh, that traction wrapping around to getting a lot of suspicious looks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's, that's there. pretty much the same trajectory. Um, yeah. And then that sort of torpedoing me in that I tried both to like middle finger those people, but also um, uh, play towards them and right. losing some of my own voice. And I went through that for a long time. It's only been a last couple of years that I've been able to say, you know what, fuck them. I'm going to just play for me, um, uh, which hasn't led to any exterior success at all. Um, and I, but you feel like you're finding, but I feel like I'm playing at a level that I'm comfortable and happy at and improving. The question I would ask you though is, so it sounds like in the lead up to this block, you went through a period of transforming your voice a bit. I would say that's backwards. Um, I've only been really transforming my voice now. Right. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, you went through a period where you were playing to them. Right. And then a period of not playing at all. And I I wouldn't define that necessarily as a block. I would define that as a, if you wanted to spin it positively, as saying, I need to refine my voice. Yes. Well, and I think I glossed over a little too quickly. There was definitely a period that was a straight-up block where um, up until about last year, I was drawing a lot and writing a lot. I wrote reams and reams and reams, but I couldn't finish anything. And I drew uh, about 50 or so pages of a couple different comics, and I couldn't quite finish them. I was I would get near the end, and then I'd be really unhappy with what I produced. So it was at that point that I realized, like, I need then I need to step back, and I need to really reassess what it is I'm trying to say, and am I going about the right way of saying it? And um, it's only been very, very recently, like the past eight months maybe, that I've started drawing again. Um, and even then, I kind of made a lot of the same mistakes. And one of the reasons why this movie that I saw this past, uh, it was two weeks ago, it was not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, um, resonated was that there was, a, I, I see a lot of myself in this sort of attitude of, I'm going to make this one perfect comic. Um, I started last year, I started a comic based on my friend Anush Frunjan's uh, story that she told at an open mic. And I started doing a a comic about it. But I was so obsessed with making it this perfect thing and still in the back of my mind thinking like, okay, these people are going to see it. I'm going to submit it to this 
you know, this particular website that a lot of them submit stuff to, I've got to make it perfect. I've got to make it amazing. I've got to make it this masterpiece. And Richard Williams is never able to, and I don't want to spoil the documentary. It is well worth seeing. It is phenomenal. There's some really heartbreaking twists and turns. What he did, like the pieces that he made are jaw-dropping, absolutely jaw-dropping animation. But he could never finish it. And that was what I was finding myself running into with the Anush comic and a couple of the previous ones was I was spending so much time. I had like, I have some pages that are, by my own personal standards, gorgeous. Some of the best work I've ever done. But I couldn't finish it because I was so obsessed with making it perfect. Um, And it's only been the past three weeks. I started a new comic. I decided I needed something that was, and I don't want to say throwaway, but I'm going to say throwaway. Um, The audience for this is my coffee shop. It, it's a, it's a, the story of the water balloons I told here. I'm just doing it as a comic. It takes place near my coffee shop. I've been working on it in my coffee shop. They sell art and comics there. They've been bugging me for a long time and saying, like, we'd love to sell something of yours. I'm like, yeah, all right, I'll do a thing specifically just for this coffee shop to have there. They're, I don't feel like they're going to judge me. I don't feel like I'm going to get any sort of dismissive looks from them because they're just happy that I'm doing a thing for it. And that, setting the bar low, has... And just giving me something to shit out has given me a degree of freedom and um, a sense of voice that I didn't really feel like I had before. One of the things that I really took away from uh, my grad school, one of the few things that really stuck with me was those uh, story that the head of the school uh, told us, which was that there was, um, I don't remember if this is a metaphor, if this actually happened, but the way the story goes is that a, there's a group of students who are divided into two groups. And uh, they're told they're going to be making a clay pot. The first group uh, had the entire day to work on making this one perfect clay pot. And just it pours much effort and energy into making this just one clay pot. The other group had all day to make 50 clay pots. And then at the end of the day, the two groups would get together. And as a class, they would all vote on which group, which was the best clay pot, which group made the best clay pot. So they looked at the first groups and they all spent the entire day on that one pot. It was a gorgeous clay pot. It was beautiful. They did a great job. They looked at the other group. They did 50. The first like 25, 30, 40 pots were varying levels of shit. Like they were just crapped out. But by the time you got to number 50, the last 10 were way better than that single clay pot that the first group made. There's something to be said, while it's beautiful that Richard Williams wanted to make this gorgeous single masterpiece, I don't want to fall into that trap of being a master of a craft, but also a master of nothing. He's never produced anything. Yeah, on the other hand, like, I mean, there are traps to uh, any process. Like, it's more about finding the process that works for you. If you're, you're, you know, Kubrick uh, was a brilliant director and made amazing movies, but as he aged, he went from making a movie every two years to a movie every ten years, you know? Sure. And that's because he wanted more control over the visual and more, like... Sure, but he you know, started like, out making a ton of pictures. It's like Hitchcock, also. I mean, he his progress slowed down, too. He made a ton of movies in his 20s, and a lot of them aren't very good. Right. I mean, you need to practice. The question is, you need to, you need to make... Uh, a lot of people, especially in performing arts, hmm. um, their practice is um, public. Yes. And I think that's not necessarily the yeah. brightest way to go I, about it. I, I think about it almost sort of like, you know, maybe my comparison is like Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Is it like you'll work on a packet for Saturday Night Live and it'll be like the four sketches that you really think are the best things that you've ever written, that you dwelled on and you wrote for a while. And then you get the job. Um, and now all of a sudden you need to figure out how to take that skill and do that thing that it took you like three years to write Yeah. every single week. And when you're forced to do it every single week in that way, you're able to do that thing that previously took you three months to do in, in far less time because you, cause you have to learn every different little thing that you need to do to make it better. Sure. Every, uh, every year I do uh, NASCARIMO which is the National Sketch Writing Month, it's in September, um, you have to write a sketch every day. And they have a website for it where you can track your progress. And just having that mechanic mm-hmm. makes me do it every day. Otherwise, I write you know, a sketch every couple weeks, every month, maybe, if I'm not feeling particularly inspired. Um, uh, and then the, 
for the coming year, most of the stuff I actually produce or come up with comes out of the Nascarimo stuff that I wrote. I mm, yeah. re-edited it, it and go back in. It's good to have that sort of a structure, and it's good yeah. to have an outlet. And to go back to performing, one of the things I really like about performing, and specifically storytelling, because that's the type of performing that I generally do, is that I do like the fact that it's practice on stage, and I do like the ephemeral quality to it, because that takes a lot of the the fear out of it for me, of like, well, if this doesn't go great today, it's fine. It just evaporates into the ether. I'm not sitting there staring at, like, I've got, I still have a ton of those comics. <laughs> I produced perhaps more than I should have in terms of, like, what I sell at conventions. And they kind of just sit there like a fart in the air in that I will always see the flaws in this thing that I did. And coupled with the experiences I had and the block and just a lot of those those issues that I had with grad school and with that community that just kind of colors it more and more. And it's hard to not see that when I look at those pieces. Whereas, you know, if I have a rough night doing the story, it sucks. It may like make me a little bit depressed for a couple of days, but it's already behind me and I don't have to be reminded of that. And that's helpful just to get me past that. I don't know. It's, it's a weird, and it's a weird comparison comparing storytelling with comics. Um, but it, there's a lot of similarities in terms of what I'm trying to do with both and the voice that I'm trying to find with both. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that was what happened to me this week. This week, these past two weeks, I've been really doubling down on drawing comics but trying to not burn myself out by doing it too much. Um, but I've been making a lot more progress than I've made in the last several years. So it's been very encouraging. And I do feel like I owe a lot of that to this documentary, which really just kind of reframed a lot of the apprehensions and struggles that I've been facing for the past like three or four years, but even going further back to grad school. So cool. Cool. Thanks. I suppose I'll talk about what happened to me this week. Um, all right. So, uh, people pleasers, um, get kind of, uh, it's kind of a, it's, it, the term people pleaser is kind of a negative term um, because people pleasers, you, they're usually pretty nice people, but there's no, there's no way they discern their niceness. Their niceness is just sort of global and it's not very genuine. It's not, they're not disingenuous with their niceness, but they, they want you to be happy more than they want you deserve to deserve <laughs> happiness. If that makes sense. Um, and I say this being uh, something of a people pleaser. And the other um, major trap for people pleasers is that uh, people who are really non-deserving of uh, being pleased, they try to reach that much more. As I've mentioned a few times on uh, this podcast, I am a dog walker in my neighborhood. And... Um, that means I am in my neighborhood, which is a pretty residential neighborhood, uh, at, at times when, you know, nine to fivers are not. And it's kind of a different neighborhood during the day than it is at night. If you uh, just work a nine to five job and then come home or whatever, you think of it as like a pleasant residential neighborhood with, um, uh, uh, you know, some shops and good restaurants and stuff to do and blah, blah, blah. You think of it, if you are if you work in it during the day, you think of it as a pleasant residential neighborhood with a lot of moms and kids, um, a lot of unemployed people, and a lot of um, characters <laughs> running around. Because, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different sort of setup. The people who are home during the day, you know, a lot of them are, uh, you know, people who have different work schedules, you know, waiters and so forth. But uh, then there are, you know, you got your people on disability and your new parents and all that stuff. Um, and again, then you got your characters. There's there's the guy with the heavily lidded eyes who walks really strangely um, and who, whenever he sees me with a dog, um, says, nice dog, man. But whenever he sees me elsewise does not look at me. Um, and he sees me like two or three times a day. So he'll see me with a different dog and he'll just be like, nice dog, man. As if he has not previously seen me. Um, uh, and a couple other people like that, but mostly it's very, being in the neighborhood at that hour is very pleasant and you get to hang out with the dog. 
clients, and that's always nice. There's one other class of people that you run into uh, pretty frequently in my line of work, uh, which is building supers. And they're an interesting group because just about anybody I've mentioned can make my job difficult, but they can make my job relatively impossible, at least in the, in the short term. And they could also ban you from, from a building if they got really angry at you, so that would be um, a problem as well. Most building supers in uh, Queens just kind of stay out of your way. You know, they're not particularly interested in bothering you, and you're not particularly interested in bothering them. As long as your dog does not make a mess, they don't care. And uh, most of them are also pretty good about the stuff that could make my job difficult. Um, though some of them do put down nameless chemicals on the floor, which could be difficult for dogs, if you think about it. Um, and stuff like that. Uh, just like random cleaning chemical all over the floor. Obviously shiny, obviously there, it's obviously you, drying. It's good that you differentiated that. Otherwise, like, they just throw a random chemical <laughs> on yeah, the yeah. floor. No, but like, you'll, you'll walk into a building that's under like renovation and there'll just be stuff. Yeah. Like, and like crumbly bits Ugh. and, and, and possibly like glass or whatever on the floor. And you'll be like in the, in the, in the common areas. And it's not even about dogs. It's like, hey, there are kids. Yeah, well, oh, no, but there's a big difference between cleaning chemicals and, and like, like just like boron. Yeah, 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 just being like, oh, I'm a warlord, yeah. <laughs> and, and I happen to be the super of this building. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, anyway, um, uh, typically building supers, and you stay out of each other's way. Um, there's one super though I see just about every day. He is a very forward-facing building super in this one building that has about 75 apartments in it, fairly large building. And he is all over that building all the time, which is interesting because I never actually see him doing any work, but he like, he's one of those guys who's like very like into building a community in his building. So like he gets to know everybody who comes in he gets to like, he gets very, um, no, yeah, nosy, I would say. Um, and uh, he's also very aggressive. And I've had this like sort of thing happening lately where I question um, whether uh, I am assuming a certain like cultural superiority in assuming that interactions should go a certain way, you know, like because I uh, spend being in Queens a lot of time around cultures that are different, and I never know if I'm having a, a, an interaction that is going a way that I would not assume because it's just culturally different, or if I'm talking to a crazy person sometimes. Um, but he uh, he's, I think, a crazy person. <laughs> um, and he's from uh, a uh, some, some central, some stripe of Central European um, uh, or Eastern European, and he, um, uh, he's very aggressive, so, like, the first or second time I ever saw him, there was, like, dog shit in front of his building, and I'm a dog walker, and he sees me coming out with dogs, and there's dog shit there, and he is kicking it while wearing sandals, oh. and he just starts going to me, this is you, and I went, what? And he goes, this is you. Now, here's where I'm a people person, a normal person, a people person. A normal person goes, fuck you. I went, do you want a poop bag? Because I carry those and I clean up poop as part of my job. I'll help. And he goes, no, I clean it off and walks away. And I was like, oh, okay. Another time I saw him, his entire, uh, like, uh, I think uh, his wife lives with him, obviously, and his kids come and visit a lot, and they bring their grandkids, so I've seen them around a lot. And they're all sort of in front of the building when I'm coming out with a couple dogs. And he just turns to me and screams in my face, You go the other way! Not because the dogs were bothering the kids or that the kids were afraid of the dogs or anything like that. He just screamed that at me. And one of the other people goes, What happened? And I was like blanked by it, you know. I didn't do anything. I just right. sort of froze there. And he just and he goes, "No, I know him. He's funny." <laughs> what? And then I just went ha 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 <laughs> and walked 
the dogs away, again, being like, should I do something else? Like, should I stand up for myself in some way? Should I not say that's funny? But, like, again, A, people pleaser. B, building super can make my ability to get to a dog I need to walk go away, and then I lose money, I lose the client. Anyway, I come into the building the other day, I think it was this, uh, this Wednesday, uh, I come into the building, and uh, as I'm going uh, in, a guy is coming out, and he sort of looks at me. I'm like, well, whatever. Uh, go upstairs, get the dog. Uh, and the guy had had his laundry, and I walk the dog, and I come back, and um, bring the dog back up, having walked the dog, put it away, come back out of the building, and as I'm coming down the elevator, I come out, uh, and the guy who had looked at me is bringing his laundry in. And he puts his laundry down in the elevator, I can hear him sort of behind me as I'm walking out, and then holds the elevator door open and goes, Dave? And I turn around, and I'm like, yes, because I didn't recognize him at all. Mm. He'd grown a beard since the last time I'd seen him, which was about five years ago. Uh, And he had been a guy who had been in an improv class with me. Uh, And we started catching up. Just there, he's holding the elevator for a second as we catch up. And, you know, we have a very pleasant conversation and talked about what we were up to, what we were doing. And, um, you know, it was sort of one of those New York things where it's like, oh my gosh, this guy I used to know and was friendly with and then lost contact with, even though we're both still fucking Facebook friends because who fucking looks at Facebook? Um, really. Um, we're both... I had no idea that this guy lived like two blocks from me, you know, for now, I guess like year and a half or in a building that I work in. So that's hilarious. Like, great. We caught up and, uh, then I had to go on my way. He had to go on his, but you know, I'll, I'll uh, definitely, uh, send him a Facebook message at some point. Um, and that was, you know, the end of it and finished out my day, do whatever you do on Wednesday night, which I think is just, be sad and then go to bed. Um, and then Thursday rolls around and I'm again going into that building. Um, I uh, don't have any dogs with me. I open the elevator dog door to go pick up this dog, dog, press the button, and it goes down instead of up. And because it's a queen's elevator, it has no central intelligence that's running it, so it just responds to the first button press. So while I was opening the door, somebody else had pressed up in the basement and now we had to go down to the basement and when it gets to the basement the door flies open this guy walks in and just yells in my face you hold the door the super guy yeah 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 and i went what no i didn't yesterday you hold door i watch you have conversation points at the camera you have conversation I see everything. (laughs) And I went, what? Because A, I didn't hold the door. His his resident did. B, it was for a minute and a half. C, what? You hung on to that for, for, for a day? And then I'm assuming saw me come into the elevator on the camera, press the button so that you could fucking catch me and yell at me? And I've had a rough summer. I haven't had, like, a very good time of things lately. Um, Not in any concerning way. It's just, like, shit's been tough. I stopped trying to please him (laughs) right then. I let him yell because he was going to, and I didn't do anything because I wasn't about to get kicked out of the building and go to jail by starting a fight with this guy. But I literally turned away from him and stared at the wall (laughs) (laughs) as he ranted at me until I got to my floor and then walked out without acknowledging him. And I'm never going to do so again. Because fuck that guy. And I don't know that fuck that guy should be considered a um, 
a major revelation on my on anyone's part. I don't know that I want to encourage that, but for me, being a, an historical people pleaser, fuck that guy actually seems like a healthy step for me. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's what happened to me this week. Wow. Do, when's the next time you're gonna have to be in that building? Uh, every day. Oh, really? Every weekday. Every wow. I pick up this dog every week. So tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Jeez. Yeah, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy. Huh? That's well, so creepy. Yeah, he's... Ugh. I get the feeling we're going to have another story in the next few weeks about what the consequences of fuck that guy. Yeah. Possibly. Or maybe he'll just move on to another target. I mean, you yeah. can't be the only dog walker. You can't be... You, that's more than one resident of the building that has a dog. Hey, hey. Don't mess up his thing. He's the right. only dog walker. The only walker dog walker. The only dog. Yeah. Can't be the only person holding doors for. I didn't even hold the fucking door. That's right. Yeah. Or having the door. Yeah. It, oh my God. That guy is such a fun human being. Right? Who does that? That's so fucking creepy. I, I, uh, I guess it's my turn. Yeah. It is your turn. Um, so turn we, it up. Um, so we talked about not apologizing for any of our stories before we got on the air. Um, I do want to apologize. <laughs> not. For my story uh, specifically, uh, but it has it has to do with some of my vision issues again, and I feel like I've been going to that a lot. Uh, but it is also a decent part of my life, so I'm apologizing for the fact that it is a decent part of my life. And you may hear a disproportionately large number of stories uh, as relates to that. Um, <laughs> and I'm just imagining if like Mark Maron started apologizing. You're going to hear a lot about my neurosis. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I feel like I've been going to that a lot. <laughs> oh, wait, that is me. Okay. <laughs> uh, that is all of the things that represent me. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I've talked about the fact that I, I was diagnosed with, with retinitis pigmentosa RP, which is a gradual progression of vision loss. Um, and it is a particularly mean disease because when you get diagnosed with it, they basically tell you, like, hey, um, you're going to slowly lose your vision at a rate that we have no idea what it is. And it's going to slow down and speed up. And we really have absolutely no information for you other than this is going to progressively suck. Best of luck to you. Go get them. Um, and then maybe take some vitamin A and it might slow it down, but we don't fucking know. <laughs> so enjoy your life with the knowledge that everything's going to be like that. It's also, uh, uh, as I understand it, a disease that isn't, it's rare enough that it's not very well understood. Correct. And, uh, um, and, there, and there are so many mutations of it that even if they kind of understood it, they can't even figure out which one you have. Oh, wow. So they, they have no idea. They think I have recessive, which is more um, debilitating than the dominant one, which seems counterintuitive because recessive feels like it should be recessive and not <laughs> as mean as it is. Um, but it's but, got something to prove, right? Yes, yeah. yeah uh, it's got a Napoleon complex. So uh, I, uh, I've been dealing with that for you know, a while. Uh, and the, when, you, when I first got diagnosed, it, wasn't, it didn't feel like it was that big of a deal. But as, uh, as you progress, you sort of hit these waves. Um, of realizing that there are things that you could do that you no longer can do. Uh, and I think it was around 2010 that I got hit with the first like wave, um, which was that I couldn't travel on the subway without assistance, that I couldn't travel through city streets without some level of assistance. Um, and I had fought for a while using the cane um, because I didn't want to be that person. Uh, and... Somewhere around 2010, I was just like, you know what? Like, my world's getting too small. The number of things that I can't do anymore is getting too small. I need to use the cane. And as much pain as it caused for me to kind of admit that I was that person now, um, it sort of opened the world up back again. That, like, I could go out and sort of be me, but me with a stick. Um, and some once I got familiar with the place, I didn't need it anymore, but... When I needed it, it was there for me. Uh, and now, uh, five years later, I'm sort of realizing that I'm beginning to hit wave number two. 
um, which is even with the stick, there are things that are kind of going away. You know, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had to go to uh, Grand Central, um, and I was with my wife. But uh, Grand Central, I mean, it's famous for being Grand Central, and you know, uh, and I. I went into a full-on panic attack. I couldn't handle it because everybody was coming in so many different directions, and I started to sweat. And I sort of realized that I don't think I can go here anymore. You know, even with assistance, even with a cane, even with my wife sort of there, I don't think I can go there anymore. The anxiety that it brings on, there's got to be a different way to go wherever it is that I'm, I need to go. So I sort of just accepted that, you know, um, and... Last night, um, I sort of, I began to hit into another one. I was going to Morgan's show um, that I was performing on. Uh, thank you very much for Absolutely. having me. You did a great job. Thank you. Um, you as did you. Thank you. Um, and uh, the train normally stops a little bit above Times Square. Uh, and the show actually happened to be in a theater like half a block off of Times Square. Arguably still Times Square. Yeah, it's basically still, like, the worst part of New York. Yeah. Just slightly to the right of it. Uh, but the, the train normally stops, like, a block above it, and you just walk down a block and go to that theater. Um, last night, uh, that stop was closed, so I had to go to 42nd Street and walk up four blocks. Um, discovering that pretty much once I was on the train, that that was the reality of the situation. And... And for non-New Yorkers, 42nd Street is the heart of Times Square. Yeah. yeah, it is the worst part of the worst part of the city. And if you're non-New Yorker and you're hearing this and being like, no, Times Square, tourism, I love it. Um, from the from the perspective of somebody who has a place to be, if, you're, if, you, live, if you do not live in New York and you come to Times Square, of course, yes. Oh, my God, taking the grandeur, all the blinking lights and all that shit. But if you are somebody who has somewhere to be, that must cross Times Square in some fashion because of that place, or worse, in Times Square. The, the thing is that you're surrounded by a million people who are all going, oh my gosh, look at the thing! Yeah, yeah and have nowhere to be whatsoever. And right? of course, to make things worse, this was a Saturday, the worst day of the week. Yeah, a Saturday at, at rush hour. Yeah. Yeah, or just after rush hour, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I got out of the train, and I'd been, through, I'd been in Times Square somewhat frequently for rehearsals. So I was like, you know what? I got this. Not realizing that I'd been in Times Square for rehearsals going that one block that I normally do at like 6.30, which is not nearly as bad on like a Tuesday as opposed to Saturday night Yeah, at 9 o'clock. Um, and I instantly realized what a giant crazy mistake it was. <laughs> Um, cause the cane has no power in Times Square, um, because it's so crowded that people can't see it. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're all of a sudden just kind of like there amongst the masses. Um, and I discovered a bunch of things about crowds like that. Um, when crowds are packed that densely, they block light. So you can't see if someone's in front of you or not. You can only walk forward and hope that someone's kind of not and sort of reach out the cane a little bit, but most of the time you're going to hit people's ankles. I also discovered that if you walk on the right side of the street, there are no street signs, so you don't know what fucking block you're at. Uh, and I was walking, and uh, I could feel myself kind of losing it. You know, I could feel myself uh, freaking out, and there was a small minority in voice in my head or whatever you want to call it that said you know you could just turn right on any one of these blocks and go around and get to the exact same place uh and the much louder voice was like no we're fucking doing this and i couldn't figure out why that voice wouldn't shut the fuck up because <laughs> just turn to the goddamn right and go the other way. Uh, and I pushed on and I pushed on and I couldn't figure out what fucking block I was on. And I went to like, 
Google Maps, which said I was on three different blocks at three different times. I was like, you know, like phasing through buildings and shit like that. Like it refused to tell me where the fuck that I was. Well, the other thing is about Times Square, the buildings are so tall and so like over, lean over is that I don't think you get good GPS. Yeah, it, it was sort of a sort of a complete shit show trying to get up there. Uh, and eventually I got to the block and I, and I then had to figure out what fucking building it was. Um, and I started to think about like, why, why didn't I turn right? Why didn't I take the easy way? Uh, and I realized it was because I didn't want to lose this. Like I didn't want to make that choice once again that now this was something that I couldn't do. Because along the way, anytime you have stuff like this, and this is, happens to be an extreme case because I'm, you know, I have a particular thing, but we're all going to get older and we're all going to have things that we sort of lose. And every time you accept that there's a thing that you're going, that you can't do anymore, your world gets smaller and it's so much harder to make it bigger again, you know? that you have to fight through this thing. But it's this weird fight because you're constantly balancing, like, do I make my life miserable during that time to hold on to my ability to do this thing? Or do I just avoid doing that thing, and in which case I'm not fucking torturing myself, you know? Um, and when I got to the... Sh when I finally got to the show... Um, I was not in a good way, as Morgan probably attest to. to. Um, and it was at that moment that I, like, I knew I was supposed to go first in the show, and I knew that I was not in, in any position to kind of do that. Uh, because uh, I, I couldn't see straight. I couldn't breathe straight. My chest was bursting into 1,000 beats per minute. Uh, and that was sort of that first time where I was just like, you know what, I, here's what I can do. I can ask to not go first. <laughs> I can say, look, I can't take care of myself in this way because I'm not losing anything. I'm just saying, hey, this is possible. <laughs> can this happen? And thank you very much for, um, for allowing that to be the case. Um, I, so I don't know that there's a, a point to my story um, other than sort of explaining that kind of fight to people that like, um, that I ultimately looking back on it, I don't ever want to go to Times Square again, but I think it's worth the fight. I think it's worth kind of holding on for each of those things. Cause like I said, we're all going to get older and we're all going to have each of those things. And I don't want to be that old guy sitting in his apartment, not ever doing anything because he's afraid of stuff. You know, like I look at, I look at old people and so many of them are afraid that like, the post boy is going to steal their mail and come in and kill them and stuff like that because they made a bunch of choices along the way that things were too scary out there that like the 30 year old version of them would have been like, what kind of fucking crazy ass weird per like beliefs that you have. But somehow now to them, it makes sense. Um, so anyway, that's, that's my story for this week. Well, the one thing that I noticed is, I mean, more that you can maybe take heart in when you are faced with that, you're, thought wasn't I could just go home or I'll never go to a thing again it was how can I find another way through this so while you could definitely look at it as like well I guess I'm not going to Times Square again you still were able to figure out solutions to like I can still get to the place I need to get just taking a different yeah. route don't get me wrong the chief voice in my head like the the child version of me wanted to just oh, drop yeah. to the floor and say please help me right you know, and you didn't even like come close to giving it to that one. That one was no. like way in the background, and I think that's yeah. fantastic. Um, so, I mean, it, on the one hand, I want to say like, "Oh no, you never go to Times Square again." Yeah, that's a dream we all have, right? But at the same time, like you were able to, you didn't give up, um, even if there was that. And I, I completely understand that fight. And I think even those of us who aren't dealing with vision problems have still faced similar. I mean, we're all in our thirties, so there's certain things that our bodies can't do as well as they used to. So you shut up. Some of us, Dave is, Dave is in his teens and he looks great. Is it creepy that I said that? That might make me a pedophile. Um, 
Are you saying you want to bang me? Not want to. Um, have. Have to. <laughs> um, I've come from the future, and there's a couple I'm... things we have to do. Well, the first is to bang so that the Terminator can't get us. Well, if it's, yeah, it's, if it's, future. If it's for the future. It does all check if out. It's anti-Terminator. Right? It's anti-Terminator. <laughs> yeah, just, just trust me on that one. Um, I have a very anti-Terminator stance. Yeah. So. Um, I feel like there's some, like, Uber conservative be like, see, this is how it starts. <laughs> this is how they spread their Terminator marriage. Yeah. <laughs> this is what the gays do. Yeah. They, um, they claim Terminator. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so I think I think there are all things that we've had to admit that we can't do as well as we once did anymore. And you can either completely give up or you can find other ways around that. Um, I don't know. That's... I found that to be like actually kind of awesome that you, your first thought was like a solution rather than just like turning around and going home. So, especially once you get like two blocks in, yeah. Because then you're like, well, either direction sucks. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so I might as well keep going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, I think that's our show for this week. I think so. Yeah, I think that's. Um, does anyone have anything to uh, plug? Anything coming up? Got a couple more weeks of Thursday night shows at the Magnet Theater at 8 p.m. I'm uh, going to wait to find out what other shows Morgan has to he can put me on. Oh, that's yeah. That's seemingly <laughs> what I've got. <laughs> um, I've got one in densely in the heart of Chinatown. Okay. Um, that's my least yeah. favorite part of New York. Oh, no, it's, it's super shitty. Chinatown. Yeah. The last time I was in Chinatown, um, I was walking along and a bus came by and it splashed this like big pool of filth water all over me. I could just like taste the squid and the fish. It's like, oh, I'm gonna get so much tetanus today. Um, I have a, a show on Thursday called Six Minute Saga over at Brit Pack, and then the following week I am in Bear and Foreplay on Monday and I think Thursday's the other one. I have to check on those dates, but um, Bear B A R E and Foreplay F O R E Play. All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Bye. Thank you.